0: We are grateful for the time you take to join us for these conversations.
1: You're listening to the ERLC Podcast.
2: Finally, since we are marking the one year anniversary, is that showing that beep? Can you hear that?
1: Your computer beeps every time you get a text?
2: No, it. this is a new computer, so I haven't figured turn out how on, to do not
0: disturb.
1: Yeah.
2: OK, I'll do that. But is it like I'm muted? So am I muted on the you microphone or anything? You. OK, great. What, what What did I just say?
1: Hello and welcome back to this week's episode of the ERLC podcast, where every week we're talking about our work here at the ERLC and focusing on what Christians need to know about the things going on in the world. I'm Josh Wester, and it's a special episode. With me in the studio or the virtual studio today is our co-host Lindsey Nicolay.
2: Um, I would like Ever Faithful co-host, please. Since Ever uh, Faithful, spoiler alert,
1: Lindsey Nicolay. Yeah,
2: Brent isn't with us. Good morning
1: from Brent's not here. <laughs> well, good morning, Lindsay. And hello, faithful audience. Also with us on the podcast is the podcast ninja, Megan Smith.
0: Hey there, I'm definitely not Brent, but I guess that'll do for today.
1: Brent is with his family on a long awaited vacation. They are somewhere on their way to Florida. I talked to him yesterday and they're breaking this trip into like, I want to say like 37 segments, but really it's probably like three or four. (laughs) Uh, But they have small children and driving to Florida.
2: When you say vacation, do you mean they're having a baby or actually going (laughs) on a vacation?
1: <laughs> I mean, they're going to the beach, and as far as I know, there's no plans to oh, have a baby or pick okay, one up. Okay, an along actual the
2: way. vacation, great. Right, <laughs> just wanted right. to clarify.
1: So, man, well, thanks for closing the loop on that. Hopefully, uh, <laughs> uh, anyway, people, we are excited about this week's episode. There is a lot to talk about. Some things good, some things heavy. And later in the show, we're going to talk to our friend Dr. Scott James, who is a pediatric infectious disease doctor specialist specialist. And uh, yeah, so I mean, I, I would apologize for getting tongue-tied there, but man, what a title, what a job that this man exactly. does. And he's amazing. And he's also one of the most faithful and amazing Christians and people that I've ever met. And so we're going to talk to Scott later. He's been on the podcast before about a year ago as we were entering into the pandemic. And so since this year, I should say it at the top, since this year marks basically the one-year uh, mark. It's today, by the way, we're recording this on Thursday, March 11th. And today, one year ago, is when the whole world shut down, it felt like. Lindsay, so that we can get into it, tell us what the earl he's been talking about.
2: First, I have to say one of the most notable things about Scott James is that he is a Florida Gator and not a poser one, really? but one who actually went to the University of Florida. Yes. So hmm. I'm sure we'll give a little shout out during the A big old chomp for him. Exactly. Uh, you know, this does mark the one year anniversary, I don't know if you can call it that, of uh, of. The pandemic, it's just crazy to believe that we've made it this far. And at the same time that we have a vaccine after just a year and we're looking at opening again, we're turning to some semblance of normalcy. So I thought I'd start off to just highlight the importance of church membership. So our um, intern, Andrew Bertadotti, has an important article titled, Three Ways Church Membership Challenges Our Individualism. We have felt as believers, the importance of church membership this year more than ever, as we have not gathered in person as usual, and we've been deprived of our face-to-face community. And I am so ready to get back to church. Haven't My family hasn't made it back regularly yet. But this article also reminds me of a book that I'm reading that I mentioned on one of the other episodes that we've recorded. I don't remember which one, but a book by David Brooks titled The Second Mountain, where he talks about our individualism uh, and talks about how, um, how dangerous it is that we were really made for community. And so Andrew in this article highlights several ways that church membership challenges this aspect of our individualism. And I'll just give you a teaser. Church membership means we can't choose our community. You know, you often hear you can't choose your family. You kind of can choose your community, but once you plug into your community, you discover that it's not the community you thought it exactly was. (laughs) Church membership means we're rooted rather than detached which a lot of us this year have felt so detached, and then church membership means we can't curate the opinions around us, which is so true. Uh, So I would encourage you to check out this article and be challenged to look at the ways maybe that uh, COVID has fed into the tendency toward individualism this year and how um, the Lord maybe calls you to break out of that as we return back to um, quote-unquote normal.
0: This is a really good article, Lindsay. I love the end, Um, Andrew. He says, when we commit to a local church body, we are granted a church family to bear our burdens in an isolated and unstable world, which is so right for right now, um, just how the church can come around us and what a blessing it can be when the world is falling apart. The church can be that stable thing. Now there's sinners that make up a church, but um, the church can really be that um, rooted groundedness that we need. And I, th- I feel like, honestly, I would have loved to learn that lesson a lot earlier in my life. Um, I think in even college we were encouraged that you could church hop and that would be fine, but the value of church membership is just so important.
2: Next up, we have an important article by our policy staff. Now this is an explainer about a important Supreme Court case. I am not even going to attempt to pronounce the names involved in this case because it is near impossible for me, uh, but this explainer tells us about how the Supreme Court sides with a former student on religious free speech. So in 2016, this student uh, was at Georgia Gwinnett College, and he, as the article says, talked with interested students about his Christian faith and distributed literature on campus grounds, and a campus police officer approached him and informed him about a policy in place that prohibited this distribution. So uh, this student uh, sought... um, to protect his free speech, and this case was won in the Supreme Court. So, uh, Josh, what more can you tell us about this case and the importance of it?
1: Yeah, Lindsay, you did you did a good job. It's a it's a tough thing. So I'm gonna try to make it very simple for people. Here's the deal: uh, all the time on some of the more uh, liberal or progressive public college campuses all across the country, they have implemented these discriminatory policies that keep uh, Christians and other uh, religious students from sharing their faith and practicing uh, their religion, even in places on campus that are marked free speech zones. So that's what happened at this college. Uh, This guy was a Christian. He was sharing his faith on campus. He was approached by campus police and told, hey, you can't do that here. We have two specific free speech zones. Check that out. Free speech zones. And you have to go to one of those two to do that. So then he says, okay, no problem. I can do that. He goes to the free speech zones and then he's told, hey, you know what? You're not actually allowed to share your faith here either. Well, This happens all the time that what happens, he talks, he contacts uh, some, you know, First Amendment attorneys who represent him and are going to help defend his rights to free speech. This ends up going uh, to the courts and in litigation. And as they are having this legal battle, this happens not just at Georgia Gwinnett, but at colleges all across the campus. I mean, all across the country when they when the school finds out it's going to lose on First Amendment grounds, it just changes the policy. And then goes, oh, well, we're not going to lose this court case. That policy doesn't exist anymore. And so you would think, okay, what happens is they they change the policy. The policy is no longer there. So then the lawsuit goes away. This lawsuit, the Supreme Court decided 8-1 that that is no longer a loophole that colleges can pursue in order to avoid the penalties for violating people's civil liberties. And so in this case, this guy was suing for what's called nominal damages. That's like a dollar or $10, like something totally insignificant. But it's so that even if they change the policy – he can still get a judgment rendered about whether or not the school violated his civil rights, which will stop other schools from being able to do that in the future. And the Supreme Court said, yes, you can sue them even for a dollar so that we can rule that they were in the wrong for what they did. Now, the court didn't actually rule on the merits yet. They didn't rule to say that the school did violate his civil liberties. But the fact is that they did, and that's the kind of judgment he can now get. So this is actually really, really good news because it keeps – colleges from being able to discriminate against people and then change the rules at the last minute to avoid a legal loss. That was a helpful
2: explanation. And I just have to comment and say, isn't it a wild world when we have free speech zones on our college campuses? It's
1: just Yeah. Crazy. And th- free speech zones where you're not allowed to say things that <laughs> to you have free believe. speech. Right. Like, exactly. How, <laughs> so, how
2: unbelievable. It is unbelievable. Such is the world that we are living in, our cultural moment. Uh, We have another explainer, actually, uh, from our staff about a controversial removal by President Joe Biden. So the title is Explainer. Removal of EEOC General Counsel Creates Concern for Religious Liberty Protections. So another important religious liberty story that we're covering, the EEOC is the U.S. Equal Employment Opportunity Commission. And as I said, he removed uh, the general counsel. And this is the federal agency responsible for enforcing federal laws that make it illegal to discriminate against a job applicant or an employee because of the person's race, color, religion, national origin, age, disability, or genetic information. So you can imagine why uh, the removal of the general counsel by a president would cause concern particularly for those who, those of faith and for the Christian community. The confusion is, can't the president fire anyone in his administration? So, um, Josh, I'm going to lean on you again for this. Can you clarify some of this for us, if it even is able to be clarified right now?
1: Yeah, so it's— I'm unbelievably fortunate that I had to jump in and help edit these articles before they were posted. Otherwise, I would have no idea what we're talking about (laughs) because this is outside of my wheelhouse. But I'll tell you, so the EEOC is supposed to be an independent government agency uh, that oversees the implementation and handles uh, cases of discrimination related to the workplace. And so they handle basically employment discrimination cases. And in this particular case, uh, the person that was fired the general counsel this wasn't a term that has not yet run up i think it's a 5 year term that she was serving And so when President Biden made the move to fire her, that was definitely reaching into what is supposed to be an independent agency and firing her. And the truth is that it's actually just an open question as to whether or not the president can do that. There have been other agencies where they have um, gone to court, uh, going all the way to the Supreme Court to decide uh, whether or not the president has that power. And the truth is that because this agency is not exactly like the other agencies where we've seen a judgment rendered, we just don't know the answer. Here's why this matters. This person who... Uh, was serving as a general counsel at EEOC. She was perceived to be an ally or friend to religious liberty, and she was somebody who um, I, I've I've read that she took all kinds of discrimination seriously, that she took her job very seriously. She was not somebody who you would consider to be out there trying to pursue the agenda of the uh, progressive or LGBT movement. And so in that sense, President Biden, in just in the first 50 days of his administration, has made it very, very clear that he is a vital ally for uh, the LGBT lobby, and he is also— almost certainly uh, going to make this move in order to replace this general counsel with a person, with someone who is going to be much more sympathetic to those concerns. And conversely, it's probably much less likely uh, to be a friend or ally to those who have uh, either religious or conscience convictions that, that run into the agenda of the LGBT lobby. So this is, this is, if the Supreme Court ruling was really good news, this was kind of disheartening and bad news.
2: I'm glad you're the one who had to uh, read over this and help provide edits (laughs) because it would have definitely been over my head. But I'm thankful for our D.C. policy team, especially, who keeps an eye on these things and helps uh, explain these important cases and instances to us. And just as a, a way to summarize it, one of the lines here in the explainer says, in any case, it's safe to say that the Biden administration's action is without legal precedent and may be overturned. So that would lead me to say stay tuned to our ERLC social feeds and to um, erlc.com for future developments on this case. As we mark the one-year anniversary of the pandemic, it is apropos that we're talking about vaccines and that we have an article about vaccinations. And particularly this article by Catherine Parks, who is such a gifted writer and a gifted thinker. She explains how vaccines protect the vulnerable. And we've talked a lot about vaccinations on this Podcast. We know people will land in different places. We wanted to provide um, Catherine's perspective about our high-risk family members and neighbors and the need for caution on our end for the good of them. And these few sentences really sum it up. Um, greater love has no one than this, and this is the love that compels us to serve our neighbors, and that's the love of Christ. All of us may not have experienced the past year in the same way, but by God's grace, we can experience the same joy as we set aside our preferences and desires and act for the good of those around us. And really that's um, what we believe uh, at the ERLC is at the heart of thinking about these vaccinations as we consider the ethical implications. We we want to think biblically about these things, and we want to act not out of our own preferences and desires, but out of love for those around us.
0: I love that line that you just read, Lindsay. We can experience joy as we set aside our preferences and desires. Um, and Catherine did a great job of just really not make, Uh, really just drawing on empathy, I think just stirring up compassion in our hearts, um, about what's going on and not making some hard case for vaccines. Um, and just, I don't know, I was brought back reading it, um, to where we were. She talks about being in a women's Bible study one year ago today. Um, and we were all there together and we were experiencing those moments, um, yeah, just seeing how it all fell apart, the dominoes, she said, that continued to fall and just decision after decision. And I think I've forgotten a lot of that. And this week has brought a lot of that back to realize, like, we've all been experiencing this so differently. And a lot lately has brought us together, like these vaccines that we're all doing together. But there's a lot of people that are still being affected by this in different ways. And that's what should compel us to make decisions um, moving forward.
2: Yeah, that's a good reminder to end us on as we highlight some of these articles that we have on our site this week. Once again, I would encourage you listeners to check out our website to scroll through it. Uh, we have so many resources. If you ever need anything or have questions, just contact us at info at erlc.com. But
1: Josh and Megan, that's your look at what's
2: happening on ERLC.com.
1: Hey, thanks, Lindsay. We're going to do kind of a hybrid format of a conversation and also a little bit of a culture rundown. So I have taken two uh, major news stories from the week, and I thought we could break those into uh, two sections and just kind of have a conversation about both of them. Today is March 11th. We're recording this on Thursday, March 11th. And it marks the one year mark. This is when last year we found out that the NBA came out and announced they had canceled the rest of their season. This is when we found out that Tom Hanks and his wife had COVID. And this is, you know, this is when it started to feel real. And we had no idea even then what it was going to be like. Uh, People were starting to make guesses about, okay, we're starting to shut things down. We started talking shortly after this about two weeks to flatten the curve. And that two weeks turned into maybe the longest year of our lives. And, I don't think any of us could have predicted this, but there's some really, really good news on the horizon. So from Axios this morning, they uh, they reported their, their one big thing or their lead story was America's nightmarish year is finally ending. And that's something to celebrate. They said, today, one year after the World Health Organization declared COVID-19 a pandemic, the end of that pandemic is within reach. The death and suffering caused by the coronavirus have been much worse than many people expected a year ago, but vaccines have been much better Axios Healthcare Editor, Sam Baker, writes, A year ago today, the U.S. had confirmed 1,000 coronavirus infections. We are now approaching 30 million. And in those early days, Americans were terrified by White House projections, informed by well-respected modeling, that 100,000 to 240,000 Americans could die from the virus. That actual number now sits at just under 530,000. Many models thought the virus would peak last May, but we were nowhere close. The deadliest month of the pandemic was actually in January. And last March, even the sunniest of optimists didn't expect the U.S. to have a vaccine by now. They certainly didn't anticipate that 300 million shots would already be in arms worldwide. And they didn't think that the eventual vaccines would be anywhere near as effective as these have turned out to be. So here's where we stand today. President Biden has said that every American adult who wants a vaccine will be able to get one by the end of May. And the country is on track to meet that target. The U.S. is administering roughly an average of 2 million shots per day. And 25% of the adult population has gotten at least one shot. So I don't know about you guys, but that strikes me as tremendously good news. I mean, when we were thinking about a vaccine, I don't think anyone thought that we would have one by now. And we definitely didn't know that it was going to be the vaccines on the market would be as effective as these are. So I just want to pitch it to you, Lindsay and Megan. We're a we year in. Let me just start with, how do you feel today as you're thinking about where we are? How do you feel today?
2: One word, ready, or maybe two words, so ready.
1: That's definitely right. Megan, how do you feel?
0: I don't know. I This week, I've actually had a couple friends get the vaccine, um, which is exciting to be able to hang out in a group of people, a small group still, and just be like, half of us have the vaccine, which is just Something we didn't imagine. But there's been kind of a lot of anxiety amongst some of my friends this week, just reliving the past year and the anniversary of it and just thinking, whoa, a lot has happened. A whole lot has happened.
1: You said it. A lot has happened. and. When I think about where we are right now, I mean, Lindsay's so ready uh, resonates with me greatly. I know that you know people listening to this podcast live in all kinds of places. Some places are still uh, fairly locked down and restricted. Some places are wide open. You know, Texas has proudly said that they're open for business, and we've got some listeners who are in Texas who, uh, man, they're they're their lives in many ways feel like they're back to normal. But even if you're living that life, that's back to normal uh, you're still kind of living under the, the specter of the virus, the the possibility that you or somebody that you care about uh, could, could get it and potentially could be very sick or harmed uh, from it. And so we're all ready to move on. I know that last week my wife was able to get her first round of the Moderna vaccine and it was like it was like a day of celebration in our house. Uh, both of my parents have had their first round of vaccines in North Carolina, and that was that was something that was great relief to me. And I've seen so many people uh, say similar things, whether it's on social media or just in conversations about seeing their their parents or their grandparents uh, receive the vaccine to know that they're going to be able to resume living their lives and and that they'll be safe and that they won't be uh, in. They won't be in danger of severe illness just from, uh, you know, just from going to the grocery store or going to work one day or going to a baseball game or, or whatever that might be. And so it has been, I think honestly, it's going to take me a long time to process this. I was talking to my seven year old about it the other day and he said, I said something to him like, you know, I've never lived through something like this before. I really don't know uh, what it's going to be like afterward. And he said, you've never lived like something, lived through this before? And I said, no. And I hope you don't either. Like, I hope you never experience this ever again. Because what a a surreal and all-encompassing thing uh, a year of COVID has been for all of us. And... We don't even know what all the implications are right now or the effects are right now. We're still processing it all together. And at the
2: same time, I'm torn because um I know all of our experiences have been different. There's been sorrow and joy mingled together. I I don't want to go back to the rat race pace of life. Like the slowing down was nice, although I'd like to have control over the slowing down, and the the family time that I've been able to have has just been invaluable. Now if I had been going through this pandemic single, like I was for so many years, I would feel a lot differently. I probably would have moved in with family or something like that. But to have time just with my husband at home working and two small kids, one having having one during the pandemic just recently, um, it's just been so nice and, and such a, a blessing and a time that probably will never happen again until maybe my husband and I retire one day, which is weird to think about. Um, So yeah, I just feel torn in so many ways.
1: Megan, I'm gonna go to you first. So I know you have picked up a couple different uh, new things during the pandemic that have actually been kind of wonderful. It has brought opportunities for you to do things that you weren't doing before that you've talked about how great they are. So could you tell us about maybe some of the positive, if unintended things that have come out of this time?
0: um sure I don't know what the couple of things that you're talking about
2: are but you picked up a fiance (laughs) um
0: I would say yeah (laughs) I did pick that's what I was wondering I was like is he talking about that I did pick up a fiance so like just the life change like on top of this crazy year has been even crazier for me personally um doing just finding new rhythms um I I it's been a long time. I would love to go back and do it. I once counted about halfway through this year how many miles I walked because that's all I could do for so long and like living alone, like it was next level of I don't just me, myself, and I at the house and just some sweet time with the Lord creating new rhythms of consistency, um, which have been really good. Um, the Peloton app working out, those kind of rhythms. Um And then slowly as we've been coming back together, one of the things that I have picked up is hanging out with a group of my friends consistently every Tuesday. We hang out on the porch um, and we've been doing that for a year. Um, Meeting outside, we still do that around the outdoor fireplace and friends that I've had since middle school and high school. We've created that rhythm again and I have loved that and I don't want it to stop when the pandemic
1: stops. That's really cool. Lindsay, what about you?
2: You know, I picked up a baby. That's a new thing during the pandemic. So, so that that has changed some of my rhythms around here, and it has been a positive yet challenging development.
0: Lindsay, what's so crazy is that I don't even know if I really saw you in person at all while you were pregnant. Like you had this like hidden yeah. pregnancy, and then you just suddenly have a baby. So I weird. know.
2: <laughs> I if I if I could have done it, it would have been. Awesome to just totally keep it a surprise and just all of a sudden showed up with the baby. That would have been the best, but I couldn't <laughs> I couldn't keep it quiet <laughs> that long. Josh, and I can't believe I'm saying this when Brent is not on the podcast for his reaction. You'll be happy to know that I actually pigs have started flying, and I the next show that I started while I am feeding the baby is The West Wing.
1: I didn't have words to say. In response to that, how awesome is it that Lindsay has, after all this time, finally caved? So I don't know if you made it, how far you're in, but the end well, of season one is where it gets it's that's where it gets good. So you just right. got to hang in.
2: But see, I, I've actually seen The West Wing before, but it's I don't think I watched the last season, and it's I've seen it in a different light because this is before my time at the RLC. And I know season one is on the struggle bus, many say. But the first couple of episodes have actually been enjoyable. So the dialogue is fantastic, I will say. So, you know, I I, I just hate to admit that. I didn't even want to admit it. But watching the West Wing.
1: Well, I just want to say that I am both amazed and overwhelmed.
0: I can't believe you did that while Brent wasn't here. How's he ever going to know? It's going to be like the biggest surprise ever.
2: Well, I guess we'll find out if he listens to the podcast. I was going to say, we're going to have to tell
1: him that there's a big Easter egg in this episode for him. (laughs) exactly. Uh, uh, And so, yeah, I think we should celebrate, you know, there were, there were good things that happened during COVID. And so uh, Megan getting engaged was among them. Lindsay having a baby was among them. These were, you know, two big podcast uh, things to celebrate. In fact, those might be the two greatest things that happened in terms of our podcast career over the last over the last year. I have, uh, I actually followed Megan's advice on this. I started zoom calling with friends that I never get to talk to in person. And we started doing like, you know, more group chats instead of like individual phone calls. And I've started a million text threads uh, during the pandemic that I did not have going before. And those have been very, very life-giving to me. And so that has been, that has been, you know, again, some of that unintended uh, positive outcomes of, of this year of plague. And I think though, after even talking about it for this long, the big takeaway for me is that I'm so ready. I want to go back. I want to just steal that from Lindsay. I'm so ready uh, for life to be back to normal. I was out there on the baseball field with my son uh, for the first time on, uh, on, I think, Tuesday night of this week, and it just felt so good to be back and to be out there again, but it's going to feel even better when we're doing those things and there's no concern about about the coronavirus, and that's a thing that is a distant memory. Uh, I really am ready for that to be a thing of the past. So, for the next thing that I thought that we would talk about, this is the other big story going on, especially in our world and Southern Baptist life, and it's news about Beth Moore. So, I'm gonna read this from the Biblical Recorder. They report longtime Bible study leader Beth Moore has publicly announced that she is ending her affiliation with the Southern Baptist Convention and Lifeway Christian Resources, a relationship stretching back more than three decades. Moore made the announcement through an interview with Religious News Service. On March 9th, she said, I quote, I am still a Baptist, but I can no longer identify with Southern Baptist, she told RNS. Another quote, she said, I love so many Southern Baptist people, so many Southern Baptist churches, but I don't identify with some of the things in our heritage that haven't remained in the past. End quote. She told RNS her perception of the SPC began to change in 2016 with the election of Donald Trump as president. Specifically, she cited... His behavior toward women as revealed in an Access Hollywood tape and a lack of a condemnation from Southern Baptist leaders. On May 3rd, 2018, Beth Moore published a letter to my brothers outlining her experience as a woman ministry leader in Southern Baptist life. On October of 2016, she wrote about the attitudes of key Christian leaders that she said smacked of misogyny, objectification, and astonishing disesteem of women, and it spread like wildfire. As stories of sexual abuse in Southern Baptist churches became more widely known, Moore became a leading voice for accountability and healing. That culminated in her taking part in a panel at the 2019 SBC annual meeting in Birmingham that was titled Sexual Abuse and the Southern Baptist Convention, which was attended by nearly 1,300 messengers, guests, and media from the SBC. But in the RNS interview, she said by that point, she no longer felt a part of the SBC. So that conference that they just mentioned there, sexual abuse and the Southern Baptist Convention, that panel that Beth was on, uh, that was something that was convened by our organization, the ERLC. And Beth is somebody who has been incredibly supportive of us and our work. She's been a vital partner in our efforts to combat and to deal with uh, the sexual abuse crisis that, that is present here in the Southern Baptist Convention and, and the aftermath of the Houston Chronicles uh, really expose, where they uh, demonstrated hundreds and hundreds of abuse cases that have taken place in Southern Baptist churches across multiple decades. And so uh, hearing this news about Beth Moore this week has just struck so many of us. Uh, It's been painful and hard to think about someone. uh, Beth is among the most famous uh, Southern Baptists. And to watch her not just quietly leave the convention, but to watch her depart and for her to have put out there why uh, the things that, that she sees as issues in our convention that she feels like uh, cause her to no longer be able to affiliate with the convention and to partner with Lifeway, which is basically the the resource and publishing arm of the SBC. Uh, it has been, it's been staggering for me personally. It's been really hard uh, to take in and wrap my mind around. I have had a number of conversations with people just in the last, uh, it's been about 48 hours, I think since we received this news uh, or it became official and there's there's just a lot of emotions and a lot of uh th- there's a lot to say but I thought I would just kind of come to you guys uh Megan and Lindsay and ask you like how are you processing this? How what do you think about the fact that that Beth has announced that she is leaving the SBC? I guess I've got to start off and
2: say that uh Beth Moore's Bible studies and books were just instrumental in my life and my walk with the Lord and my uh, study of the Bible when I was in college, when I was probably in high school, a senior, and then in college. And, uh, I had learned so much from her, her love for the Lord and his word is contagious. Her encouragement, uh, to, to sisters in Christ in particular is, um, just astounding. And so many of us just owe her a debt of gratitude and, and she has been greatly used by the Lord, um, in so, so many ways, and will continue to be used by the Lord. So I'm very thankful for that. Um, You know, I, as it stands today, Beth Moore and I would probably hold to some some different beliefs, not when it comes to orthodoxy, but to some other things. We would diverge at at the fork in the road when it comes to certain things. Um, But I do do just think it's tragic that um, she feels like the SBC is not a place for her because of things like racism uh, that has been seen, particularly in on Twitter, um, because of the things that she mentioned, misogyny, objectification, disesteem of women. I mean, those things just do not have a place, not just among the SBC, but among believers in general. There's no place for those things, and they, they should be repented of in all of our hearts. And um, I think it's important to note that Twitter doesn't represent the majority of Southern Baptists. Um, even some of the Southern Baptist leaders that that may have um, led to her departure, there are a lot more Southern Baptist people and faithful Christians and churches than those that are represented by the vocal majority on Twitter, shall we say. Um, I think it's important to remember that. I'm just kind of verbally processing this because I'm, I'm not an expert at I'm just kind of thinking about it out loud. Um, but I have to say I, I wasn't I was kind of caught off guard, but it it kind of made sense to me. I I think if I if I look back, I can see this trajectory maybe coming, though it is still just sad and it's still the SBC should should be a place where any woman would feel at home and would feel welcomed and would feel valued, um, and would feel like they are pointed to Christ constantly. So I think that's the heart of the matter for me.
0: That's really good, Lindsay. I um, also am just kind of now processing. I I feel like I need to like sit down and fully and understand and just think through all these implications. Uh, Beth Moore's studies also, I've gleaned so much from them. Um, I've watched other women glean so much from them. And then take on teaching roles as well. And so I, her influence is just, it's just massive. And I don't think so many people that I learned under, even if it wasn't directly under Beth Moore would have been who they are without her um, leading the way in that. I think though, what we all love and know about Beth Moore and what she has taught us is that we hold tight to that. Just like we talked about earlier, like church membership is important, but Beth has taught us like to love Jesus more than that and to love the word more than that. Uh, one of the things that I look at her and have seen her at events and walked beside her backstage. And I think something that just sums that up is just like how tightly she clings onto her Bible at all times. Like that thing, if you have seen it before her When she is speaking and teaching, she holds so tightly to that. And so above all else, her affiliations and what else, she loves Jesus so much. And I think that's what we can glean from, from Beth. And I I hope that her ministry continues in other ways. I know it's going to, I know it's not going to be through Lifeway and those platforms, but um, I hope that she continues to teach faithfully.
2: What about you, Josh? How are you processing everything?
1: I'm In the same place, I'm not ready or even willing to give up on the institution that is the SBC. The International Mission Board is the single greatest missionary sending force uh, that has ever existed. Uh, we have thousands of missionaries on the field right now across the world because of, of our cooperative effort. And the truth is that when I think about who Southern Baptists are, I mean, some of the conversations I've been having with people, people say, what do you mean when you say the SBC? Uh, and the truth is, you know, we try not to, we try. this is a very positive podcast. We try to talk about the good stuff and the happy stuff. But like some of the discourse that happens about SBC related matters and more broadly than that, evangelicalism on social media, particularly on sites like Facebook and Twitter, uh, it is, it's toxic. It's terrible. But if you go spend time with real people, uh, real people who are in SBC churches, so many of those people are wonderful, and that they're wonderful, and that transcends whether or not they're from more traditional and very, very conservative churches, or whether they're from more like urban church plants. Like the, the cultures that are in the SBC, they are they vary greatly from congregation to congregation. But the thing that unites us is the gospel. We have a very broad and excellent and faithful uh, statement of faith called the Baptist Faith, the Message, and it is the thing that we're able to unite around, and it provides a very big tent for Baptists to lock arms and cooperate for the sake of world missions, uh, also for the sake of church planting, for the sake of disaster relief and humanitarian causes. We have six incredible seminaries. We have uh, Lifeway, which has for decades produced incredible resources to train Christians, children, students, parents, the ERLC does vital work protecting and defending religious liberty and equipping Christians to think about how to apply the gospel to all of life. I mean, there is so much good stuff that happens in the SBC as an institution. But honestly, uh, it is it is being threatened uh, because some people in our denomination uh, are are clinging to things that, that are not Christ, that do not represent what we mean when we say uh, Southern Baptist and who Southern Baptist are. And honestly, I think that you asked me how I'm processing it. It is making me, I'm very sad, but it's making me more and more aware of the fact that I think the SBC is facing, it's facing a critical future. Like it's an inflection point and we're going to decide uh, one of two ways that the SBC is going to go into that future. We're either going to retain our broad evangelical identity that has room for all kinds of people who can unite around the Baptist faith message, or we're going to go a different direction and become the kind of convention that has a very narrow uh, understanding of what it means to be a Southern Baptist that is only inviting two certain kinds of people. And I think that would be tragic. And so uh, if you're a Southern Baptist and your church is sending messengers to the annual meeting, that's great. You should try to be one. If you are Southern Baptist, and your church doesn't send messengers to the annual meeting. Nashville is a great city. You should come see us in June. Uh, It would be really, really good for you to be a messenger uh, from your church at the annual meeting because even that, if it doesn't sound like your jam to go to a two day business meeting, uh, it actually is really wonderful. There is sermons and worship. You get to see all kinds of some of the very best Southern Baptists. There's all kinds of things going on that make it really, really worth being there. Yes, there are parts of it that feel absolutely like a business meeting. It is, uh, to quote Hamilton, uh, the decisions are made in the room where it happens. You need to be in the room where it happens. And so uh, we would invite you to be there because it's a pivotal time. And and Beth's departure is not the first, and it's likely not to be the last. But I'm committed to the SBC for as long as I can be, and I'm praying that God would lead us in a better direction.
2: This week, uh, to mark the one year anniversary of COVID and the pandemic locking us all down, uh, we are delighted to welcome Scott James, Dr. Scott James. He is a very busy man, so we are very grateful that he has joined us. Scott, in addition to being a husband and a father and an infectious disease specialist and a faithful church member, is also an author. And he's got several books, one titled, Where is Wisdom? A Treasure Hunt Through God's Wondrous World, and it's inspired by Job 28. But the one that we're going to talk to him about uh, this week is God Cares for Me, Helping Children Trust God When They're Sick. And of course, Scott is one who speaks from experience with uh, the children that he works with and from compassion and with a, a pastoral heart. We are excited to welcome Scott and talk to him about um, all things COVID and, and how we can care for those children around us who are sick.
1: Well, Dr. James, welcome back to the ERLC Podcast. Thanks so much uh, for joining us again. As we're getting started, would you just uh, remind our listeners a little bit about who you are? We've already said quite a bit about you already on the podcast, but would you just remind us who you are and what you do both professionally and in ministry?
3: Yeah, Josh, thanks for having me on. It's, it's a pleasure to be back with you guys again. Um, my name is Scott James. I am uh, a pediatric infectious diseases physician and researcher. Um, so uh, professionally for my, for my job, uh, I work in pediatrics, but I specialize in helping prevent and diagnose and treat all types of infectious diseases, but viruses in particular are my specialty. So I'm also a Avid churchman, right? So I, I'm I'm a elder and pastor at our local church, and uh, spend a lot of time thinking about uh, pastoral issues and shepherding people and and helping people uh, and families in particular draw closer to God and uh, live on mission for Him here in this world. Um, I'm married. Uh, my wife Jamie and I've been married for uh, 18 years now, and we have four four kids uh, that are kind of elementary and high school age.
2: One of the things that we wanted to ask you about is COVID. So this week is the one-year mark since things really shut down here due to the pandemic. And we saw one year ago today the NBA announced that it was canceling the season. We found out that Tom Hanks and Rita Wilson had contracted the virus. As a healthcare professional, first of all, thank you for serving, which I I just— imagine has just been crazy in this last year for you. Um, but as one who specializes in infectious diseases, can you tell us a little bit about what the last year has been like from your perspective?
3: First of all, I, I just can't even believe it's been a year. It's, it's this weird time warp where that, the things that you just mentioned, NBA and Tom Hanks and such, that feels like a lifetime ago. Uh and yet, in another sense, this year has gone by in the blink of an eye, in a lot of other areas. So it's been very disorienting. Um, as a healthcare worker, it's been a very challenging year. There's kind of no way to sugarcoat it. It's it's been a rough year. Um, a lot of healthcare workers are struggling uh, right now. A fair amount of uh, mental health issues are coming to the forefront as people are burnt out and uh, and tired. Just tired from it. Really has been the gas pedal all the way down all year long for, for so many different healthcare workers. And it's, you know, it's it, people are in different areas and, and are experiencing different things. So it's not a universal situation. Uh, I, I do know some doctors who have actually kind of had a slowed down schedule this past year, because for whatever reason, COVID has decreased the amount of professional services they've provided. Um, for, for my Role uh, it definitely has ramped up, and uh, it, it's it's been the busiest year of my professional career, uh, clinically and academically. We just had a lot going on. There's there's we kind of feel like we've been treading water, just keeping our head above water all all year long, uh, as we've had increased patient numbers, uh, particularly in, in my area uh, of uh, uh, specialty, uh, and, and then just a lot to learn, right? Like we we we're dealing with this novel virus uh, that. Prior to a year ago, no one had experience treating COVID-19. And so there was just, from a scientific approach and standpoint, there was so much to learn. And that's one of the heartening things that's happened this year, is that the scientific community uh, has really went into overdrive and and done some heroic efforts. Um, I'm talking of others, not myself here, uh, that that have really benefited uh, our communities. And and so the, the amount of scientific research that's been done in this past year has been Uh, just unbelievable, to be honest. And and so it's been busy in that sense. And and my laboratory and and, and my clinical practice both have uh, been very, very busy.
0: So as we think about the last year, we've been talking a lot about it on the podcast this week, Um, just what all has happened. It's been packed full. Um, We've been talking about Christians in the church and how we've seen them respond, some good and encouraging and some that are not so good at encouraging. So from your perspective, we'd love to hear, um, what has the last year revealed um, from your perspective about evangelicals? Did anything surprise you, cut you off guard um, from what we've seen?
3: I think as, as we think through the way that Christians in particular have responded to the pandemic, there's been pros and cons we'll we'll, we'll be uh blunt here and, and say that uh sometimes the cons feel like they've outweighed the pros uh, from from a lot of the things that I'm I have seen and experienced so the pros though are, are that I I have seen a lot of um good shepherding care going on during this so even while we're having to do social distancing and uh so in certain areas people were uh it was uh not uh, wise to gather together in a large group and meet, and so churches were um, going virtual and live stream and that sort of thing. So throughout all of those challenges, um, the, the pastors that I pastor with and then just a, a lot of other uh, friends and church members in my area and across the country have demonstrated remarkable faithfulness in, in being committed to the core mission, right? Being committed to continuing to love one another and fellowship with one another in unique ways, uh, safe ways, uh, but but not neglecting the love one another, all all of the one another um, commands that that our life uh, is supposed to uh, uh, give examples of. Um, it's been really really encouraging to see a lot of uh, Christians stepping up and finding unique ways to do that, uh, remaining committed. To loving one another in the midst of very, very challenging times. I will say that one of the areas that I've been a little bit disappointed in is is some conversations I've had with Christians who, when given the choice to uh, act selflessly and do something that they might not prefer to do, in order to benefit the public good around them. Uh, there have been some Christians who have dug their heels in and said, we're not going to do that. Uh, we, we're, we're not going to give up our rights. We're not going to uh, act in a way that is uh, different than what we feel like doing uh, for the common good. Uh, and some of them have even said it that bluntly. And it's been real, that, that just to see that there are even – Vocal minorities just to see that there are even veins of uh that thought within the the church communities or around our nation is is uh, it 's a bit disconcerting um, I think we of all people right we're we're the people who are called to love our neighbors we are the people who whose lives are based on self denial right as we commit ourselves to Christ and his church and his mission and and the good that we can do for the world in his name spiritually and physically and so to see christians. Uh, hold hold on to their preferential way of doing things, even when faced with some pretty good evidence that that might actually harm some other people. Um, that, That has been that's been disappointing,
1: Scott. That's a that's a really good answer, and I appreciate the amount of charity and and precision you tried to use with your with your words there. Because we have, you know, we we work at a religious liberty organization. We understand that uh, Christians and, and in terms of their civil liberties, that they're so important, and we want to defend those things, and we don't want to see the government encroach upon those things. Uh, but like you said, like. Christians of all people. In a time of a, of a national health crisis, a public health crisis, uh, we, we should be the first ones to act for the good of those around us. I mean, it's fundamental to what Jesus taught us in the Great Commandment. Apart from loving God with all that we are is loving our neighbors as ourselves and, and just laying down our rights and privileges uh, in order to serve those around us. Uh, it has been, at times, disheartening to see some Christians be uh, very, very uh, recalcitrant or bullheaded or whatever about things like mask wearing or distancing, e- even when it's clearly, uh, they're clearly doing things that uh, potentially threaten the health or safety of those around them. And at the same time, like you also alluded to, I've seen Christians do remarkable things during this time, finding all kinds of ways to serve between Christians and churches all across the nation, meeting needs uh, that have arisen in the last year. So I, I just, I really appreciated your your nuance there. I wanted to jump in before Lindsay. Yeah, uh, well,
3: and I appreciate that. And you make a, a great point that when it comes to civil liberties and such, that there are bigger kind of systematic issues that are uh, bigger than kind of my field of view even as a scientist. And so I appreciate that. And I, I really do appreciate when, when people are very well-intentioned about protecting the public good in a long term, like even thinking beyond this pandemic, we want to make sure we're not losing important liberties just for the sake of this crisis moment that we're in. And so I really appreciate that long-term perspective and uh, don't want to neglect that and have learned a ton this past year about how public policy has far-reaching implications even beyond kind of the health measures that we're we're trying to to advise. So I I definitely appreciate that.
2: So you, at just the right time, have released another book. And of course, that's just the Lord's sovereignty. It's a children's book titled, God Cares for Me, Helping Children Trust God When They're Sick. And you see this up close and firsthand. Um, it's not about the pandemic per se, but it is a perfect time, although we wish that wasn't the case, for a book on this subject. So can you tell us why you decided to write it and what you hope to um, accomplish through it?
3: Thank you. Uh, it Yeah, so the book is called God Cares for Me, and it's a simple story that really what I'm hoping is it just is a resource for parents to be able to use to have some tough but necessary conversations with their kids, Uh, because every kid is going to walk through a period in which they themselves get sick. Hopefully it's a minor illness, but, you know, perhaps not. Uh, But also, even if uh, a child remains relatively well, Lord willing, uh, there's sickness all around them, right? They have friends and family members that are going to walk through periods of illness uh, and that's hard for a kid to process. So as a pediatrician, as a father, as a pastor, these are conversations that I'm having day in and day out, just the nature of the the, the worlds that I inhabit uh, in those roles. Uh, and, and so I wanted to just sort of help some parents think through uh, tough conversations in a helpful way. Uh, I want it to be something that uh, helps parents Face the reality, the the difficult reality that sickness can bring. Uh, So I don't think kids benefit from sugarcoating or uh, uh, avoiding the hard realities that that we face. We live in a fallen world, and kids are not oblivious to that. And so if we if we don't acknowledge the reality of some of the difficulties that we face, um, we're we're doing our kids a disservice. And and so the, the book walks through a sick day with a little boy who wakes up not feeling well, and for him it's kind of like a uh, like you said, it's not pandemic specific. It's not COVID specific. But this this child in particular has uh, kind of a, a sore throat, sort of respiratory virus uh, thing going on, and uh, and he's scared, right? Like he just he doesn't feel good, and and uh, he, he's concerned about that. And so his parents kind of meet him where he is and help him appreciate that. Yeah, like this is this is not pleasant, but despite all of that, we're here for you. We're going to take you to a doctor. The doctor is looking out for you. Is going to do what's best for you. And then also. More important than all of that, the point of the book is to point to God and to help children clearly see that even during tough times, God is with us. God is in control. God is going to shepherd us even through this. Uh, He's going to take care of us. And then there's kind of a little bit of a turn in it because the book is— since it's it's a, it's about a transmissible illness, right, so this child has an infection, um, it, the, the book also brings in some public health aspects, and that's where it's not pandemic-specific, but it does have some kind of public health uh, implications to it, in which the child is being reassured that God loves to take care of him, the child, but God also gives us the privilege of taking care of other people. And so it kind of has this love God, love people dynamic to it, uh, where we're uh, reassuring the children that God is in control, but we're also encouraging children to see that we're a part of his plan and we get to bless the world through him. Uh, and, and so when when we're sick, we want to act in a way that uh, protects others and is uh, doing good for the sake of others. I call it COVID relevant, but not COVID specific. Uh, so hopefully it has <laughs> uh, a life after the pandemic is over. But uh, hopefully also it's a very timely resource for the current moment we find ourselves in.
1: Gosh, Scott, I love that because like you said, like it, I do think the book came along at just the right time. I and mean, what a perfect time for, for this book to be released and for it to be a resource that we can get into the hands of parents. But at the same time, uh, it is certainly going to transcend this moment and continue to have a lot of value. We spent time earlier on the podcast talking about uh, it seems like we're facing really good news uh, when it comes to COVID. Between... I mean, the vaccines uh, rolling out, it seems like case numbers are falling, hospitalizations are falling, and that we are, you know, we, we can see the light at the end of the tunnel. Uh, so thinking about the themes in your book and the way that you and your job uh, serve families and children and parents, uh, what are some things you think that we can take away from this moment? And as we think about what we've been through, like, what are you thinking in terms of walking away from this? How should, how should Christians, and especially Christians, related to their children, like, how do you think they should help them process all of this and think about moving forward?
3: Uh, that's a fantastic question uh and I, I love the premise that we are moving forward right like that that is something that we we have to realize uh that we we can't um despair um there is hope out there vaccines are rolling out with increasing numbers and uh continue uh after going in millions of people now uh throughout the world uh continue to be uh demonstrated to be safe and, and, and effective. We're, we're seeing case numbers drop. Um, partially, that's because we're coming out of the colder months as well. So I think that does contribute at least a little bit to it. But um, lots of reasons going on, but cases are dropping right now and things are going in a good direction. And so there's uh, legitimate reason to, to be hopeful that we're uh, kind of seeing the light at the end of the tunnel. And CDC even recently has kind of given some updated guidance statements that um, that I, I you just kind of can't help be optimistic about Um, I think that said, however, there's still a lot of sadness to be dealt with and processed. We're, we're, we're right at the one year mark now for, for kind of pandemic life in the United States. And, um, we've just crossed 520,000 deaths due to COVID related illnesses, more hospitalizations than I can fathom. Uh, the total number of cases has been, uh, just. Yeah, there's just still a lot of devastation, um, and just taking a moment to, even as we hope for what's ahead, to reflect on the fact that that over half a million people in America have died uh, from this. That's sobering, right? Like, I don't, I don't want to move on from that so, you know, so quickly uh, to where we just say, okay, cool, it's over, let's move on and, and get back to normal. Uh, there's, there's literal death and destruction in the wake of this. And, um, you know, we don't want to be doomsdayers, but uh, it, it, I want to acknowledge that and, and, and take some time to reflect on that personally, right. Kind of as, as I move forward and think about what, what that means for the future and, and, and what's next. Um, so I just, I, I kind of, uh, I want to reflect on how hard it's been and, I would love it. I would love it if we as Christians could be a part of kind of an ongoing reconciliation process. I want to have a, a hopeful future and I want to be an active part uh, of Jesus' mission uh, as as we try to serve and love other people all around us.
1: As the people... Of Jesus, you know, I want to uh, I want to see Christians be the kind of people who uh, care about their neighbors and can help lead in these times of crises. And so, uh, I, I just really appreciate that that final word that you left us with there. But also, we just look, we're grateful for your work professionally. We're grateful for your ministry uh, to parents through writing and to children through your writing. And we want to say thanks so much for taking the time to join us today.
3: Yeah, thank you so much. Yeah, definitely my pleasure.
1: So now it's time for the lunchroom where every week we tell you about the things we've been talking about with one another. Lindsay was ready to go on the lunchroom this week, so I'm going to let her go first.
2: Well, as I've mentioned during COVID, one of my hobbies, which has been relatively useless for the bettering of my mind (laughs) and body, has been watching shows. And so we watched this documentary on Netflix called Murder Among the Mormons. And so it's not, it's fascinating. It doesn't, it may not sound fascinating to you, uh, but it is fascinating. It's less, it's not grisly, like grisly murder among the Mormons. It's more, I mean, murder is terrible, but it's more like diabolical. The storyline is just fascinating. So it's about these rare documents that this gentleman found um that, really revealed some holes in the story of Mormonism. And so it involved the exchange of money to be able to deal with these things. And then some of the people involved wind up murdered. And so you're trying to figure out who did it, what's the motive behind all of this. There's only three episodes, so it's not going to take up too much of your life. Uh, But it is really fascinating and also gives you a window into Mormonism. So I learned a little bit more about Mormonism than I had known. So if you like those kind of documentaries, I would recommend it.
1: You know, that sounds really fascinating. I know it's not an actual look at real Mormonism, but the it just reminds me of uh, the audiobook, Educated. So it's a real book, but I listened to the audiobook and the, edu- and the book was so fascinating and amazing. And her family, uh, her, they are they're very hardcore and devout in their in their Mormonism, and they are just a totally, totally interesting uh, story there. So if you've never read or listened to that, it is it is really fascinating by Tara Westover. and so that's a that's a resource for free that's not even my lunchroom. But Megan, tell us what's on your mind.
0: Okay, my lunchroom today seems small, but it's a big deal because this weekend is daylight savings, and we are springing forward into more sunshine which I'm just I'm just pumped about for so many reasons. Um, it just feels like spring again, like when this happens. Um, and there's a lot of debate out there. Uh, I read some articles this week about people trying to get daylight savings forever, like us not doing the whole fallback thing, because I know everybody gets really grumpy when we do that. But I think I'm here for both of them because fallback and spring forward, Because I don't think we would appreciate the springing forward, the saving of time, the extra sunshine, if we didn't have the darkness. So there you go.
2: That is a good point. Now, you know, as one who has a fiance and is soon to be married and Lord willing, there are children in the future. I think you will change your tune when you, when you have little kids who, uh, (laughs) whose sleep is messed up because that is the nightmare of daylight savings time. It just messes with the kiddos. We have our former coworker, Philip, his wife, Cammie was like a daylight savings time prepper. And so she would a week out would like move their bedtimes in the appropriate way. I cannot get myself together enough. Yeah, like
1: like 15 minutes per day or something like that. Like it was really strategic.
2: It was. I can't get myself together in that way.
0: Wait, but this one, it's not supposed to mess up your kids, right? It's the fallback that does.
2: Fallback definitely does. I'm not sure about this one because I don't really remember it from Marion. So I guess I'll report back to you. I'll let you know. But so that is why I dislike daylight savings time, just mainly the sleep
1: issue. So it's funny because I absolutely hate spring forward and I absolutely love fall back. And I would put up with one awful time of spring forward just to be able to get to fall back. I like the extra hour that comes once a year. But here's my real like honest opinion. I don't understand what would happen if we cancel daylight savings time enough to know if I'm for it or against it there are smart people on both sides of this equation and I have no idea.
0: I thought eventually it would like the sun moving. I don't understand the planets and all the things, but like it would, something would happen. But in one of the articles I read, it was, it's mostly about energy saving and farmers and like our working hours and stuff like that, which we don't really follow anymore. Um, But it's kind of an old tradition to save energy.
1: I think it started during World War II, but somebody can fact check me <laughs> on that and see. Uh, but the whole plan was, yeah, energy conservation and making the most out of the out of the natural sunlight. But so that we can move off a topic, I don't understand. Uh, here's another thing I don't understand, which is not actually my lunchroom, but we can't do this episode even without Brent without mentioning uh, the drama of the royal family. If you paid any attention at all, you saw that Harry and Meghan sat down with Oprah to do a just insane interview that I kept getting push notifications on my phone from all these different news services about the things that they were saying. Here's the thing. I think it's really sad. I don't have any opinions about like who's right or wrong or doing whatever. Cause like, it's not my family, but here's the thing. It is a family and I know they're Royals and I know that, you know, there's, there's press and paparazzi and all kinds of things that go along with that. It just makes me sad to see a family's drama be broadcast to the whole world like that.
2: It's sad to see your drama. Uh, being aired on not just national TV, but on international television. And I hope that they can come to a, a reconciled resolution.
1: I definitely, definitely agree. And so my last thing for my real lunchroom this week, the thing I can't stop thinking about are deep fakes. So we have known this is coming for a long time. We've been talking about it uh, for several years about what it's going to be like when deep fake technology is finally here and guess what it's here and it's only going to get better uh but it started or at least the thing that i saw going viral was uh deep fakes of tom cruise where tom cruise was you know it's not real but you see this guy it looks just like tom cruise it sounds like tom cruise and he's you know there's a video of him playing golf and it's it's surreal but then since then there are now these websites or apps that you can use to take a picture and then input audio and you can literally put words in somebody else's mouth Uh, What I can say for sure is that our culture is not nearly prepared for what could happen as a result of deepfake uh, creation. And that this is honestly, while right now it seems like a kind of fun thing, because there is sin and evil in the world, it is bound to be used for uh, nefarious and wicked ends. And so I am honestly very, very concerned about where this might go. But for now, I'm enjoying watching these uh, images come alive because right now people are just having fun with it all over the internet. And uh, a theologian named Abraham Kuyper, somebody took a famous photo of him and had him singing a contemporary song. And it was a, you know, it's kind of jarring to see somebody who lived in the 19th century and is now, you know, he's been dead for more than a hundred years. And in this way, it looks like he's alive. So that's just a, it's a weird thing that comes along with technological innovation.
2: It is weird. So Josh, we'll see when you get your first deep fake what song you'll be singing. If you'll be rickrolled or something like that.
1: Oh man. Well, there, there is or a maybe good video. A Gaither
2: song. We could deep fake you into the Gaither vocal band.
1: Okay. So that takes me in two different directions to end this podcast, which is one, uh, Lindsay, you didn't sing for us this week, which is really sad. And then two, uh, there is a great video. Just the Easter egg out there. There's a great video of, of somebody getting Rick rolled in there in a deep fake. And if you find it, uh, you can email me and just say, hey, I saw it. But anyway, uh, that's going to do it for today's show. Just want to say thanks so much for listening. Thank you especially to Megan for hanging out with us and sitting in for Brent uh, while we did this episode. We know that some of this stuff was good and some of it was heavy. We're grateful to Dr. James for taking the time to talk to us today. If you like the podcast uh, and want to help us spread the word, please consider sharing this episode on social media, or you could go into your podcast app and leave us a rating or a brief review. But for Lindsay, Megan, and myself and Brent somewhere in Florida, we want to say Thanks so much for listening, and we look forward to being back with you next week with more content.